contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. We're presented as always by betonline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code PODCAST1. Receive that 50% sign-up bonus today, betonline.ag. i got a special podcast for you today. I've got Antonio Lamone. He is a lawyer in Louisiana. He is representing four ticket holders suing the NFL about the outcome of the NFC Championship game. You remember the non-call on the pass interference that was clear and obviously blatant against the Saints receiver. Interesting discussion there. The upshot is Roger Goodell and three officials will be testifying in depositions come September. That, to me, is a win. We'll talk about it with the lawyer that initiated all this. He'll go into all the reasons and what he wants out of this. First, my rant of the week, and I go to Ezekiel Elliott in the NFL. He's holding out. He's headed to Cabo or in there now training as he did during his suspension a couple of years ago. So Ezekiel Elliott holding out, among others. There's sort of the holdouts. We have a few of them around, but I'll focus on Elliott. And especially with this comment that Jerry Jones making about not needing a running back to win the Super Bowl or something like that. And basically, I translated that on Twitter to say, hey, no one's going to leverage me. I do all the leveraging here. They may indeed do a deal for Ezekiel Elliott, but it's not going to be the deal he wants. It's not going to be the deal that sets a new standard for running backs. A couple of reasons. One, he's got two years left. He's got this year and he's got an option year. Two, the Cowboys have other priorities. Joel Siegel, the agent for Amari Cooper, is in town in Thousand Oaks, California. So there's obviously discussions about his deal and, of course, the quarterback. Dak Prescott, when and where and how are they going to do that? It's going to be a big deal. I mean, either you're all in on a quarterback or you're not. And if you're all in, of course, that means... 25 to 30 guaranteed, 60 to 80. I'm sorry, 25 to 30 average, 60 to 80 million guaranteed. So we'll see how that rolls. But with Elliott, yes, he's special. And I know everyone's going to make the argument you can't just replace him and you can't talk about the devalued running backs when you talk about him because he's truly special and they need him to win the Super Bowl. All true. But you got to look at this pragmatically. Elliott's not going anywhere. He could train in in Cabo for a week, a month, but it's not going to be two months, right? It's not going to be two months. He's not pulling a levy on Bell here. It's just not happening. He's not going to walk away from playing for the Cowboys this season, and he's going to be back contract or not. Now, as I understand it, they are negotiating, which is kind of a win for Elliott. Yeah, they're negotiating, but it's not going to be the deal he wants. Because to get the deal he wants, he needs to get closer to free agency. And he's two years away. So the Cowboys will leverage that in negotiations. They'll leverage the fact that they have Cooper and Dak, who are in camp with less years remaining. And they'll get the deal they want. Now, the deal they want, I don't know. Maybe he gets $25 million over the next two years. Maybe closer to $30 million over the next two years. But nothing will be guaranteed after that. And that's the problem for doing these deals. You're not going to get the guaranteed money. If he waited a year, then he'd get two more guaranteed years. So then he'd have a guaranteed year beyond what I think they're willing to do now. And this is what happens. I mean, Levy and Bell basically, after sitting out a year, only has one guaranteed year, which is what he was going to make last year, $14.5 million. So, you know, whatever Melvin Gordon and Ezekiel Elliott get, it's going to be two years of guaranteed money, and then you know what I say, we'll see. Teams will evaluate then. They'll probably be able to get out of their contracts. So, again, this comes down to, and I'll talk about this more later, the rookie pool. It's really, these guys are stuck for four years, fifth year an option for first-round deals before they can hit prime earning power. There's the franchise tag threat beyond that, and they're never going to get true value. And holding out by Elliott? Yeah, I mean, he's showing some disobedience. He's getting the Cowboys to engage at some level. But they're going to use the suspension to get him. They're going to use against him. They're going to use some of this other stuff against him. It's not going to be a great deal. So he'll be back, deal or not. And if he gets a deal, it won't be great. So that's what we're dealing with with Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, I just think that 
it's great you can hold out and not really be subject to fines and negotiate as these holdouts are doing, but they're not going to get great deals, you know, because they're a year or two away and because they're coming off low numbers on a rookie contract. And in Elliott's case, he's got a lot of working against him. The position he plays, the team he plays for with everything else they got to get going, the fact he's got suspension and character questions in the past, and he's a running back. I keep coming back to that. Yes, he's special, but how long will he be special? That's the question everyone's asking about running backs. And in this analytical age, it's not good to be a running back because analytics are going to show fall off at an age prior to every other positional age fall off. Analytics are not going to be kind to Melvin Gordon or Ezekiel Elliott in this negotiation. Okay, let's move on. As I mentioned, I interviewed Antonio Lamone, the lawyer for the suing the NFL, and he's got a win. He's got Roger Goodell and three officials going to testify. He's going to tell you about who the other three are. He's going to tell you about the case. And this is something that broke in the news this week. Everyone's kind of responding. Oh, my God, they're actually going to testify because that doesn't happen. The NFL settles everything. And I'm sure they're trying to settle this. You'll hear about that. Without further ado, the lawyer suing the NFL and having them appear at disposition coming up, Antonio Lamont. Welcome, Antonio Lamont. Welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Uh, good afternoon. And good afternoon, and thanks for coming on. Let's sort of take us back, if you would, to, I assume, and you can tell me differently, that you're a Saints fan, and where you were when that play happened, and what led to a series of events that led you to bring this lawsuit? Well, I was uh, at the at the Superdome watching the game with my wife and all my buddies who were around me that, you know, have long been season ticket holders. Mm-hmm. And we were all there watching the game, and that play occurred, and we were all in shock that uh, that we did not see a flag. And we all knew that that flag would have, you know, given the Saints a first down and the opportunity to literally run out the clock and kick a field goal and and walk away with a victory in the NFC Championship game. So what and ended up happening? Obviously, it is, didn't. Uh, and the call happened. The Rams advance, and then what happened? Besides a huge disappointment as a fan, where did this go right. for you professionally? Well, to further answer your question, what ended up uh, happening is that, um, you know, we, you know, of course, we watched, uh, you know, the uh, the Super Bowl uh, preparatory a week. And, it, you know, at that point, uh, you know, of course, we knew that there had been an admission by the NFL that there were some blatant uh, infractions by the Rams player on our, uh, our receiver. They were admitted. And um, so when... Uh, the week came of the Super Bowl. Uh, we had yet to hear from uh, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, at that point, as to what uh, you know what his reaction was and response to what had happened. And so that Wednesday uh, press conference before the Super Bowl, uh, you know, Mr. Goodell um, addressed the media. My understanding is that we were very limited, meaning the New Orleans media, to what we could ask or not ask. In fact, I believe that only one reporter from the New Orleans media was, I was told, was able to ask a, a question, and it was a preset question. And during the course of that press conference, uh, we kept in New Orleans, I believe, a lot of New Orleans waited to hear an apology from the commissioner. It never came. There was no concession, uh, you know, that we had, uh, you know, been, uh, you know, uh, deprived of our right to go play in the Super Bowl. And other than the fact that he did concede that there were, uh, there were two blatant errors in that play. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at that point that I went home. Uh, I thought about it, uh, about this whole situation, and went back to my office, started researching what, uh, you know, the, the NFL cases that had been brought around the country, uh, drafted, a lawsuit that Thursday and held on to it, uh, trying to decide if I was going to file it or not. And uh, by that point, by the way, uh, the lawsuit that had been brought by Frank D'Amico to try to to have the NFL 
uh, force a, another game between the Rams and the Saints was uh, mm-hmm. had been denied, had been dismissed. So I'm, I'm sitting there saying, well, there's nothing that's been done uh, by the commissioner, uh, you know, and uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, draft this thing and, and, and maybe file it. But before I filed it, I woke my wife up on a Friday morning kind of early, which is scary for me because she's, she's a little Italian spitfire and, uh, <laughs> and she could, I could have easily been killed calling, waking her up at two o'clock in the morning. But I got up early that morning and I said, you know, I'm really debating this back and forth. And I, before I file it, of course, I want to talk with my wife about it because if I file it, you know, I'm suing a really big, big company and I want to be sure that she's comfortable with me uh, taking such uh, personal action. And I did. And she, she told me that she felt uh, that if it was, if I felt it was the right thing to do to go ahead and file it. So I went ahead and filed the lawsuit that Friday morning and uh, the, uh, the lawsuit began to progress at that point until we got to the point of the hearings last, uh, last couple of weeks. Take me back. If you would, a couple of things you mentioned there, you filed the lawsuit after the other lawsuit, which requested or demanded a replay of the game, went by the wayside. Tell me about the nature of your suit, and if you wouldn't mind, sort of the nature of your practice as a lawyer down there and what you do and how different this was, I'm assuming, very different than your normal practice. Well, to some extent it was. Um, You know, I have a general civil practice. I also do uh, some criminal work, Uh and I had been practicing law for about 30, uh, 30 plus years when our new district attorney was elected here in St. Tammany. And, uh, you know, I was asked to come on board as the first assistant district attorney for Washington and St. Tammany Parishes here in Louisiana. And so I, I closed my practice and I went and started working as an administrator with two other administrators to administrate to literally run the district attorney's office here for a community of about with both parishes about 300,000 people 275 300,000 people and um, I did that for uh, about three three and a half years until I uh, I uh, wanted to go back and and resume my civil practice because I really wasn't practicing law at during the time I was mm-hmm. with the district attorney, but it was a, it was something that I felt that needed to be done uh, under the circumstances of his election and going into an administration of you know, 30 years plus uh, with a former district attorney. A very contentious election, by the way. So I came on board, I helped him, and then I decided to go back to practice. And it wasn't that long after my I returned to practice at this all this all arose. But I have a general civil practice, um, and I've you know I've represented a lot of different uh, clients and you know court type cases, so both in defense and plaintiff. So it wasn't that far afield for me to look at this, um, but I had to uh, look at um, you know what uh, what uh, what the federal courts have been doing with the NFL and what the state courts have been doing with the NFL and these mm-hmm. sort of ticket holder cases. And what I found was that in the federal court system that the courts tend to apply what's called common law. You know, they will apply the case, the case law of other states uh, in, right. in looking at a particular cause of action. Whereas in the state court proceedings, uh, Louisiana law is supposed to be, the only thing that's applied and, and enforced. And really, the state courts really aren't supposed to look at the laws of other states unless there's absolutely no, no guidance in the state law system. And then they may use uh, common law as sort of a guide. Um, and I felt that the, uh, the, the ticket holder cases that have been brought in federal court had not been very successful. In fact, I didn't think any of them had been except one and it was a, only had a limited success, and that was a case involving uh, the Super Bowl uh, at Texas Stadium, uh, you know, a few years back where some of the ticket holders were deprived of the view of the game who had bought tickets. Right. And so there was some remedy given to them. But that, besides that, there was a, an uncanny record 
that the NFL had in the federal court system. And um, there were really no cases that I could find in the state court system that uh, had been uh, reported in the law book. So I felt that um, that if I wanted to have Louisiana law applied, I would have to apply, I would have to bring the lawsuit in the state court. So you did. And what was the nature of the lawsuit? Was it you've been mentioning ticket holder lawsuit? Is that really what this is about? Uh, ticket holders feeling that they were defrauded? That that kind of lawsuit? Well, I mean, it's 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 a multi-layered lawsuit. That is one of the allegations. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, we as consumers uh, of a uh, NFL product buy these, you know, I think rather high-priced tickets to go to these games. We have a certain expectation of what we're buying. It's like any other product. If, if you buy a, a Toyota, you, you know, you'll look at consumer reports and you may get an expectation. But the manufacturer will represent that its product does this, its product does that. It has this type of motor. It has this type of transmission, mm-hmm. you know, and those kind of things. Well, the NFL also represents to the general public certain things about its product. Um, we know that, for example, that the NFL employs the officials that that regulate the game. We also right. know that the NFL uh, publishes and has uh, rules uh, that are expected to be abided by by the players and, and the coaches and in the, in the context of a game. Now, we all, we all know from you know not only common experience but because of what the nfl says is that the referees are human and they're going to miss infractions mm-hmm. and nobody debates that you know everybody watches the nfl game is aware that calls are missed you know it's a fast game and 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 there's going to be occasions when a referee does not see uh, a holding penalty or a face mask and and, and in those instances, the, the rules are not enforced because the, uh, the officials don't see the infraction. So we, we don't debate that. Nobody debates that point. But what we also know is that the NFL has represented to the, the general public that it's going to be fair and uniform in the enforcement of the rules when there are infractions that are observed. So if an official sees an infraction, uh, the NFL represents that that official will it will uniformly enforce the rules of the game and will call a penalty. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody has that reasonable expectation that people believe that, hey, you know what? If we do something wrong and the NFL, and the officials catch it, they're going to give us a penalty. And if the other team commits a violation of the rules, that they're going to be penalized. And and I think that everybody has a reasonable expectation that, that is the way the game's going to be enforced in terms of the rules of the game, that there will be that level of uniformity, even though there are going to be times when a player uh, gets away with an infraction and doesn't get caught. And, uh, you know, much like uh, you would in criminal, in a criminal situation, you know, there are people that commit crimes all day long that don't get caught by law enforcement and they go on about their lives without any consequence of those penalties, at least, you know, on the surface. But what we do expect is that when somebody does violate a felony or commits a felony or anything like that, that there's going to be an arrest made and there's going to be a prosecution of that felony. And that there's going to be uniformity in the way that, you know, that those laws are, are, are enforced when, when infractions are observed. And, and in this particular case, we are contending that there were two blatant infractions that took place on that field. At least two uh, blatant infractions took place uh, on at the time of that play. And that the officials uh, were in p- the position to observe those infractions. Mm-hmm. And there were several of those officials that were there that were in positions to observe those infractions. And I believe that there are photographs and video captures of those infractions. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are also photographs and video captures of those officials observing those infractions. The, then the question then becomes, why then did none of those officials, um, you know, uh, throw a flag and enforce 
the rules of the game if they observe those infractions. Now, you know, I cannot reach into the brains uh, and minds of those uh, officials and say, okay, well, I can read your mind and you clearly did see an infraction and you made a conscious decision not to throw a flag. Um, Nobody can do that. Um, But what we can do in the law is we can infer knowledge by the evidence. We can imply, we can apply the facts that we know of to the evidence and infer whether or not someone has knowledge or no knowledge of, 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 of what they're doing. So an example would be if, um, you know, if, for example, uh, you see somebody just wildly, uh, you know, flailing around with a knife, playing with it, and they accidentally hit somebody and cut them, you can probably infer that they did not intend to actually cut that individual. They were just being very reckless with a knife and they were playing with it. On the other hand, if that person's holding a knife, walks up to an individual, looks him in the eye, and takes that knife, points it into their direction and in close proximity to them, and extends their arm out and stabs that person, you can infer that that person intended to stab that individual just by their just by the facts and the conduct that you see that take place, uh, you know, during the course mm-hmm. of uh, you know that conduct. Well, the question here becomes. Is there sufficient evidence from what took place uh, on that play based upon the blatancy of the infractions, the location of where the officials were, the video and photographic captures of those infractions relative to those those officials, Um, the fact that the ball was being thrown in the direction of where the infraction took place, uh, that there were certain duties that those officials had, to uh, to be looking for infractions uh, in the area where they took place, the proximity that those officials were from the infractions and the angles they had to look at those infractions, and the fact that three of those officials who were captured on video and, 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 and uh, photograph happened to be from the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area, the, uh, the home of the, uh, of the, uh, the opposing team, you can start drawing some pretty good conclusions of what happened. And so you're alleging bias more, on behalf of those officials? Um, there is a possibility that there was bias. I cannot say without reaching into the minds that they applied the, any sort of bias. But is, is that part of but your lawsuit, alleging bias? Yes. Okay. Yeah, of course I'm alleging that the NFL should not ever have had those officials uh, from Los Angeles, four of the seven officials were from the greater Los Angeles, meaning that they were within close proximity of downtown Los Angeles. They should have never been on that field judging a game between the Los Angeles Rams and the New Orleans Saints with uh, the uh, NFC championship and the right to the Super Bowl in the line. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So tell me this. Have you achieved your goal? And what I mean by that, obviously, you don't have answers. You don't have Commissioner Goodell and the other NFL officials on record as of yet. But the the monetary damages, as noted, are relatively nominal in a case like this, $75,000. So I'm just putting words, and these are my words, not yours, but I want you to comment. Was and is your goal simply to get them on the record about what happened and depose them about the questions like you just raised about bias. Yeah, I mean, I definitely um, want to raise those questions. I don't have to prove bias to win this case, okay? I only have to prove that the facts and the evidence that we do know is undisputed uh, reflect that there was some apparent bias or that there was some apparent intent not to throw an intention not to throw a flag from an, from observed infractions. That's all I have to prove. And that's going to be for a jury to decide if any of these three or more officials, any of these seven officials actually uh, did see an infraction and made a decision not to, to impose a penalty. That's, that's not for me to decide or you to decide or 
anyone else but the finders of fact, which would be the jury in this case. Um, but there's so no jury as answer, of yet. You're, we're in a we're in a phase where Commissioner Goodell is going to de- be deposed. Is that correct? Correct. And then so jury trial would follow accordingly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And ju- and a jury trial would be somewhere down the road. Is that where we are? That's correct. And what is the goal um, of the suit in terms? Obviously, it's not going. The game's not going to be played again. The Saints lost. The Rams won. Right. What is the goal? Well, you know, I look at this um, as, as having several pri- goals. The, the primary goal is that I believe that the um, that the ticket holders, the Saints fan base, that the Saints mm-hmm. organization, that the players, the coaches, were all deprived of an opportunity to uh, to, um, to to you know to be uh, participants and or you know observers. Of the of the New Orleans Saints in the Super Bowl, and so there's there are multiple multiple goals that I have. One is that I would like to see that uh, that the facts relating to what actually happened on that field come out, because the NFL is not the most transparent of of uh, of industries, right. and so we don't know if they've done any investigation or what the facts of their investigation bore out relating to these officials and why there were not uh, infractions uh, called on the field and, 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 and uh, you know, what exactly they're going to claim they saw or didn't see. And so we don't have any knowledge of any investigation or findings of any investigations. Um, so part of this is if we aren't going to be provided information relating to that, any kind of internal investigation and know that it was thoroughly done, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to do this with the court system. So that's one of the goals is to investigate the facts relating to this whole incident so that the, uh, so that the, uh, you know, the New Orleans um, group groupings that I just mentioned, including New Orleans Saints, we get an opportunity to find out exactly what, transpired by way of an investigation as much as we can find out. Um, number two, I think it is to, uh, to gain some level of uh, accountability for the NFL. If there were things that went, went awry in this situation that weren't just, you know, innocent human error, there should be consequences for any sort of intentional uh, non-call. Okay. There should be consequences for those that were involved in any intentional non-call. And there should be consequences if the NFL did not do a very good job of investigating this intentional non-call in terms of whoever would have been responsible for those invest- that investigation. There should be consequences as well for, um, you know, even case of gross negligence, because if um, these officials were put in these positions, they were from the Los Angeles area that, you know, that the NFL set, you know, set a stage, if you will, whether it was intentional or not, that would um, create a very a gross unfairness to the New Orleans Saints if a situation like this arose, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that there, should, there should be some consequences for the way this has been, been handled. Now, Such you know, as- I know there have been some changes to the rules. Uh-huh. That may address some of this, but I don't think that those go far enough personally. And uh, I, I think that, you know, the NFL needs to take a hard look at what happened here and take all corrective measures that need to be taken. Um, you know, so to my knowledge, I don't believe that any of these officials have been at least publicly disciplined for any of this. And uh, these are supposed to be officials that are at the highest caliber of officiating uh, football games. And, uh, you know, there were so many thousands of people that observed these infractions, but the, the refs that were closest, the officials closest to see it, uh, didn't see it. Um, you know, those are the things that need to be addressed, but there are other goals. As I, as I mentioned, the multifaceted situation, I believe that there should be an apology given to the New Orleans Saints organization into the fan base. Um, I think that um, the fan base deserves it. 
because we spend our money and we we you know we want to be feel fairly treated, particularly when it comes to uh, deciding who's going to play in the Super Bowl. Uh, we want to be fairly treated. We expect it, and I do believe that the integrity of the NFL is at issue here, because if this can happen on that field on that given moment, the way it happened, what's mm-hmm. to stop this from happening again? and again and again, unless there are true corrective measures taken to ensure that it doesn't happen again and that there is accountability for those who do wrong, do you know wrong at a level that requires some kind of disciplinary action and some sort of corrective measures taken by the NFL to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And if that has not happened at this point, then the integrity of the NFL is an issue because when we go to games now, we wonder – if, you know, this is going to happen again to the New Orleans Saints. And if I'm one of the other 31 teams, I wonder if this could happen to my team in this situation. So, but let me play, I'm going to play, um, I'll play devil's advocate, of course, that what do you, what do you say to people to say the all, it all evens out. And yeah, like you said, they're human beings. They're not robots. They're going to make mistakes. And, Somewhere down the line, either in the past or in the future, the Saints will be beneficiaries mm-hmm. of calls like that uh, rather than on the losing side. So what do you say to sort of the feeling like, hey, it's human error and it all evens out? Well, that's not what I'm saying. That is not exactly what I'm saying at all. I'm saying this is not a case of mistake or human error. That's, okay. that's where the difference lies in this situation. It was I believe the evidence what? that's going to come out is going to show through circumstantial evidence, because that's all you can use to infer intent, mm-hmm. that there was an observation of at least one infraction of the NFL rules, and there was a conscious decision not to enforce the rules. And if that is the Bye. case, that Bye. needs to be addressed. That needs to be addressed. That needs to be addressed just beyond uh, the leveling out of, of human error. When you say conscious decision, you're meaning by the highest levels of the league? No, I'm not even, I don't have to go that far. All I have to do is show that the evidence that took place on that field at that time was such that the officials that were hired by the league to observe and enforce the rules of the NFL did not enforce the rules of the NFL when they observed an infraction. That's all I have to show. I don't have to show conspiracy theories or that this was by the administration or it was instructed that the NFL, that these officials did X, Y, and Z, or I don't even have to show what motivated those officials or any one official to see an infraction and not call it. I only have to show that it happened. That's it. That's not, it's not my duty to go in and delve into their minds and what motivated them to do this. And then, you know, that's what yeah. you have to understand about the law. For example, if I go and I rob a bank, I don't have to show why that person, yeah. Yeah. If, 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 why that person wanted to rob the bank. I only have to show their conduct and that they committed a robbery. You know? And am I am I right to presume the, the lower amount of damages, the 75000 was an effort to keep it in state court rather than uh, an amount that would transfer to federal? Yes, you are correct about that. Okay. And, and, and then, but, you know, um, you know, it's hard to know what the damages are going to be in a, in a particular case. And remember, I limited the plaintiffs to this case to four. And so to say that I knew for certain that this, these damages exceeded 75,000, I couldn't say that with any degree of stipulation or certainty in a petition. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do believe that I was um, in good faith when I made that allegation that the damages were um, uh, 75,000 or less. And Mm -hmm. there's a possibility that those damages may be higher depending upon what, what is uncovered in the discovery process. And there may be additional uh, cause of action to be brought depending upon what happens in the discovery process. And I will only know that after I depose the officials and Mr. Goodell and get the answers to my written questions and to my document and evidentiary requests. And do you know and can you share the other three officials besides Commissioner Goodell that are going to be deposed? 
Yes, uh, I can do that. Um, it's going to be um, the referee who was in charge of the other officials, and that was uh, William Bill Dinovich III. Okay. It is uh, Patrick O. Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R, Jr., and Gary P. Cavalletto, C-A-V-A-L-E-T-T-O. Those three are the individuals who are also not only – are they being deposed, but they are direct defendants in this lawsuit. Where do we stand? The judge has set uh, August 22nd for the next hearing, but you don't have dates for the deposition at this point, do you? No, the court has ordered that the parties um, exchange uh, dates in September, that they're available for depositions. And so my job was to provide the NFL lawyers the hearing was yesterday, and I've already mm-hmm. I did provide yesterday dates that I'm available in September to take mm-hmm. these depositions. Now the ball is in their court under the judge's order to to contact uh, Commissioner Goodell and these three officials and arrange for them to come to New Orleans for depositions in September. And their their job will be to look at the dates that I provided, which are almost every day in September, including the weekends, uh, and to see when those officials and when Commissioner Goodell could come down for these depositions uh, in the New Orleans area. And so I'm waiting for back from the NFL officials on that on that front. If the NFL called you, the lawyers, and said, "Let's settle this thing," maybe be to prevent them or obviate the need for them to be on record in deposition, what would you ask? What would you ask for for settlement? Well, that's not an easy thing to put my finger on, but I would say there are several things that I know that I would want to ask for. One, I would want to have, uh, I would want to have uh, some reparation to the New Orleans Saints organization. It's not going to be a Super Bowl ring or it's going to be uh, the opportunity to play in, in last year's mm-hmm. Super Bowl, obviously. But just like in the case of Bounty Gate, where, you know, the Saints, uh, for wrong, their wrongdoing, their alleged wrongdoing, uh, had uh, the loss of um, draft picks and their coach, uh, our head coach, Sean Payton, being suspended for a year, just like they they penalized us for our alleged wrongdoing. There should be some reparation to the Saints organization if they've done something wrong to them and taken away a Super Bowl opportunity and the chance to play for a world championship. And I, and I believe that there should be some draft picks involved in that. And there should be some, um, you know, some level of reparation that would be suitable to the Saints. Now, the Saints are not endorsing nor have they uh, opposed this, this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I want that to be perfectly understood. The Saints have not in any way held a position on this lawsuit. But I believe that, you know, if we're going to talk about fairness here, and that's what it should always be about, what's right and what's fair, there should be some reparation to the Saints organization. Number two, I believe that any monies that, you know, there should be monies paid out and damages uh, and and uh, as well as attorney fees, which would be allowed under this lawsuit, which would go to the Steve Gleason Foundation um, uh, for uh, you know those those fees um, and damages would go to the Steve Gleason Foundation because I see it this case and I think that the other three plaintiffs see it. This case is not just about us three ticket holders; it's about an entire you know, Houdat fan nation, if you will that mm-hmm. lost in this situation. And so there should be some uh, general goodwill given to the city of New Orleans. In that. And as I look at it, giving money to the Steve Gleason Foundation will be goodwill towards helping others in the New Orleans area. So that that's number two. Number three, I believe that, that Roger Goodell should consider giving a public apology to the Saints organization and to the uh, and to the NFL, I mean the Saints fan base, for what happened in this situation. Um, you know, I do I do believe there should be some level of an apology, a sincere apology that they that the that the NFL is taking true corrective measures to fix this and ensure that this never happens again. 
for no other reason than for the integrity of the NFL and the belief in all the fans around this country that when their team plays, that when those referees observe an infraction, that they're going to call those penalties and they're going to enforce the rules of the NFL uniformly. And it's not just going to be what they represent on paper or in their emails or their their websites, but that they actually are going to hold their officials accountable if they don't do that. And if they do believe that they that an, that an official saw an infraction, that they're going to uniformly enforce it. And I also believe that there need to be corrective measures taken. For example, that there should be no referee that lives in the hometown of uh, of, a, of, a, of a team when they're going out there and enforcing the rules of the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that because they're there's always going to be bias, but there is the possibility of bias. And as much as we try to keep away, you know, any sort of bias, that would be a simple way of addressing it and having a rule of that nature. And, and, you know, there may be some way to tweak that rule. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm saying that that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, And, and uh, lastly, I think that there ought to be some consideration given to the uh, fan base of the New Orleans fan base beyond an apology, whether it is to refund the tickets, uh, if that's what they would want to do voluntarily, we're not asking for that in our lawsuit, but if they want to consider us dropping this lawsuit and, 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 and taking all these depositions and all that, there ought to be some consideration given that there should be some kind of reparation given at least to the ticket holders that went in and paid their money and expected to get fairly treated by the NFL officials that were there that, that, that evening. And I would leave it up to the NFL to come up with maybe some, some idea on that. Yeah. And that's an interesting, uh, you know, demand list that for settlement, the question to me is, have you had any conversations with NFL attorneys about settling to this point or is no. it all now about exchanging dates towards depositions? This has all happened very quickly. Uh, you know, you have okay. to understand the NFL's position has been that uh, they don't have, there's no cause of action against them or no right of mm-hmm. action, more precisely, that, you know, that they, there's, there's no reparation to be given to ticket holders or anyone else in this situation. And that, uh, you know, they've uniformly gotten these cases dismissed all around the country time and time and time again. So their position, I think, has been we're going to have our hearing and we're going to get this case dismissed. So now that all of this has happened in the last two weeks, maybe they're going to reapproach this and, and look at it. And maybe they would be willing to sit down and talk with us. But my general impression has been up to this point two weeks ago is that there was no room for discussion that. They didn't feel that there were any laws that applied to them relative to civil cause of action other than to refund the value of a ticket in some limited situations. And uh, as I see it, there is no federal law and there's no Louisiana law that I'm aware of that gives the NFL any different treatment than any other corporation in Louisiana that does business. There is no federal or state law that gives them any kind of immunity from liability in civil liability or for limited, lim, limited li, uh, uh, damage uh, responsibilities. This is strictly something that they believe that has been created by common law, but there's not a federal law. There's not a state law in Louisiana that, that gives them that sort of special treatment. They're no different than any other corporation, and they shouldn't be treated differently than any other corporation that commits wrongful acts in this state. And that's my position on that. Okay. We will follow this. So next date is, as I think I read, August 22nd, where you meet with the judge again. And meanwhile, you're picking dates for depositions in September. Is that correct? Well, there's much more than that going on. They're required, the NFL is required in 14 days' time to provide answers to right. some 35 written questions and document requests. The August 22nd hearing is a hearing that will only take place if there are 
ongoing discovery disputes as to the interrogatories or written questions and as to the document requests and evidence requests that have been made. I've already been told by the NFL they're going to make objections to some of those questions and some of those document and evidence requests. Uh, that's going to probably prompt a hearing on the 22nd, but uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how, how much they comply with the discovery rules of Louisiana law under Louisiana law. Antonio Lamont, I really wish you success. Thanks so much for being on the program and uh, fascinating uh, lawsuit against the NFL that seems to be progressing and progressing well for your side. Really appreciate you being um, on the podcast. And I, I, and, I, and I say this, and I'm not saying this to be cornball or anything like that, yeah. but I do believe that, um, that, 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 uh, that there is a divine intervention involved in this, that God gets all the credit and all the glory for anything he does. And I'm just trying to help uh, this process along to try to get to the truth. And that's all I've been wanting to get to primarily to get to the truth in this matter from the get-go. So, Well said. And uh, I hope to have you on when and if this gets resolved one way or the other. I appreciate you coming on and look forward to having you back. Thank you. Really hope you enjoyed that interview. He really explained what's going on, and I know part of it is being a fan, and I know you Saints people out there all empathize with him, and probably others out there are saying, yeah, it happens to everyone. Why are they belaboring this? Well, I think he went into all the reasons. Hopefully you learned a lot, informative and somewhat entertaining, from Antonio Lamone, lawyer down in Louisiana that has a Louisiana judge on his side, at least as we speak now. Another word from betonline.ag, it's summer action right now with all the betting. It heats up in the MLB, MLS. We're weeks away from the NFL preseason. You know everyone wants action about that. What do we have going now? And one place you can trust is betonline.ag. Sign up today for that free account. Use the promo code PODCAST1. What's going on? You've got Major League Baseball. You've got in the AL, of course, Yankees. Houston, Minnesota at the top, and the National League, the Dodgers, Cubs, and Braves. And then NFL Prison starts this week with the Hall of Fame game. We're in it now, guys, until February. We've got in online. So go to Bet Online, get in on all the action. You're online sportsbook experts. It's time to hear from you. If you've got a question for Andrew, leave him a voicemail at 484 416 5654. First one up this week is Ben from Michigan. Go ahead, Ben. Hey, Andrew. My question was more about you know, how do football teams kind of manage the administrative costs that are that come with you know running an organization, paying for the trainers, paying for the physicians that work with the the athletes. Um, I was wondering you know, what role the GM plays in that. You know, alongside of balancing the the cap space. Thank you very much. Yeah, Ben, good question. These are these are things that people never talk about. Everyone talks about the player expenses, which is all contained in the salary cap. And some people talk a lot about coaching expenses. Some of these coaches making upwards of seven, eight, ten million dollars a year. And of course all the assistants making hundreds of thousands or even coordinators making seven figures as well. There are a lot of administrative costs. You know, we talk about trainer strength and conditioning, all the administrative expenses that go into it. These are operating budget costs. And yeah, as someone who worked in administration, vice president of administration for the Packers, you had sort of the two buckets. You had the bucket that's controlled under the league system, which is team cap. And that's all player money. That's bonuses. That's that's salaries. That's all the incentive clauses. That's everything that comes under the cap. The dead money, which is not paid out, was already paid out, but it's an accounting expense. And then you have the non-cap expenses, the coaching staff, which includes strength and conditioning, and then includes the training staff under that. So you budget it out. And like any positions in life, you sort of look at the market. When you're paying a head trainer, when you're paying an assistant trainer, when you're paying a head strength and conditioning, when you're paying uh, someone involved with equipment, and that really is it. And, And just like any market, it's the NFL market. You find out or you know, hey, your friends at other teams, hey, what are you paying for this? What are you paying for that? These are all things that go into the administrative side. So again, two buckets. One is cap. One is run by the league. That's players. And then you have coaching and administrative. And that's the way we ran it at the Packers, those two buckets. And again, coaching administrative, 
millions of dollars, of course, tens of millions in some cases, but not cap, no limits. So again, teams looking for edges with analytics, with coaching, with science, there's no limit on what you can spend there. And that's where teams can get an edge, not necessarily by paying more, but getting the best people, which often requires paying more. Great question, Ben. Appreciate you calling in. Here's another one from Ramon. Hey there. Big, big fan of the show. I'm thinking about going to law school in the future. I was wondering if you could elaborate on how a law degree would help or has helped you in your case in the profession of an age sports agent. Thank you. Thanks, Ramon. I get this question all the time. People want to get into sports agency or the business of sports to begin with or the law of sports. What's the best way to go? Is it business school? Is it law school? Is it sports management school? Is it no school? Is it just trying to beat the bushes? Is it trying to get internships? And the answer is yes, right? The answer is all the above. Now, I'm partial and biased towards law school. I'm a lawyer. I went to law school. I didn't see the value of law school when I went because I wanted to work in sports and I'm like, why are they taking these classes on civil procedure? And you know, but but looking back, of course, it helped. It helped in a clear way of thinking. It helped in discipline thinking. It helped in uh, having a credential. I went to Georgetown Law School. That really helped me throughout my career. It helped me transition to a sports firm right away in Washington D.C. called ProServe. It's no longer working for a guy named David Falk, who of course represented Michael Jordan and others. So it helped. Uh, the question becomes, what's in it for you? What's the best path for you? And again, I'm biased towards law school. I will say this. In my dealings with hundreds of agents over the years and 10 years representing the Packers, the best prepared and the best negotiators were always lawyers, always lawyers, always law degrees, without a doubt. So there is some evidence that that is quite a background. Best negotiators in terms of how they were prepared, how they handled themselves, how they were able to see the other side of the coin, which is the key to negotiations, how they used leverage or left things on the table because we know we'd be back. We're always lawyers. So there's my pitch for law school. And I know that's not feasible for many, but it certainly is an important fact to do that. And I'll leave it quickly. I say this all the time. If you're applying in sports, go narrow, go deep, figure out what you want to do. Never tell an employer I just want to work in sports that never works, or I want to work for a team that never works, or I want to be an agent that never works. Why? How? What have you done? You got a writing sample. What have you done? What's your area? What's your special sauce? What's your differentiator? All right, that'll do it. I hope you enjoyed speaking to lawyers in law school. I had a good lawyer on today talking about an interesting case where Roger Goodell will actually appear in a deposition as we sit here today, and it won't be settled. Really appreciate you guys that listen every week to the Business of Sports podcast. Always appreciate your rankings, your comments, what you do with Apple Podcasts and other venues. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. Thanks for following me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.